Be turning in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We will be covering this whole chapter this morning, which is 16 verses. And let's read it together. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls." and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who, knew long, who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Our Father in heaven, we come before you once again as Your Word is now opened before us and we seek to, to learn from it, we seek Your face from Your Word, O Lord. And I ask that You would be with me now as I seek to proclaim it to Your people. May You help us to understand what You have for us to see here. And may they, the ones that are sitting before me, may they accept these things with glad hearts and with joy welling up in them. May You give them eyes to see. May You give them a mind to understand. May You give them hearts to receive it and ears to hear it. Father, may Your Word accomplish Your purposes this morning. And may it make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, fill me with Your Spirit as I seek to lead us through this passage now. And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking a self-examining question. And that question is, have you ever thought about 
how selfish you really are. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's a bold question to start off with, is it not? (laughs) But it's true. Have you ever thought about how selfish you really are? That pretty much everything you do tends to revolve around you. What makes you happy? The fact is, is that as sinful human beings, we are instinctively selfish. We naturally put ourselves before others. David Gibson puts it this way. He says, If somehow there was to be a digital recorder inside our brain that replayed our private thought world onto a big screen... I wager we would be amazed to realize just how much of our thinking is taken up with one two-letter word, me. End quote. That's very true, isn't it? I think we would all be very surprised to know just how much of our thinking is taken up with us. Thinking about our selves. And this is something that I have come to see in a very fresh way since I've gotten married recently. (laughs) Kelly and I, my wife, were talking about this the other night. I was telling her that I was going to bring this up in my sermon. So not that I did not know that I was selfish before I got married. I, I knew that I was naturally a selfish man, being a sinful man. But marriage though wonderful it is, has a tendency to bring your faults to the surface in ways that you have not seen them before. And it has done that to me. I have come to see just how selfish I really am. More times than I would like to admit, I have found myself being more concerned about me than my wife. Being more concerned about my own happiness rather than her happiness, which is what being a husband is supposed to be about, reflecting Jesus Christ, loving her as Christ loves the church, and lay down His life for her. But I can see the tendency within me to reject that and to say, no, I want to think about me, what I want, what makes me happy, what I want to do. And that tendency is true for every single one of us. It is true of all of us. We are instinctively bent in on ourselves. You know, what does this situation have to do with me? That's how we tend to think. And if the situation doesn't have anything to do with me, if I'm not going to gain anything from it, then I really don't want to do it. And I really don't want to be here. Because what am I getting out of this situation? We are instinctively concerned first and foremost about what we can gain. What can I profit? What can I receive? And already the preacher has shown us many ways that we try to do this. Ways that we tend to seek gain for ourselves under the sun, meaning this fallen and sinful world. That's what he means when he says under the sun. 
He showed us back in chapter 1 how we try to escape from the boundaries and the limitations that creation itself with all of its cycles and patterns put upon us. We don't like the fact that we're going to come and go like the previous generations before us. Because what gain is there in that, right? There's nothing. There's nothing to be gained. He then showed us how we, like the preacher himself, try and seek gain or significance from living a life full of wisdom or a life full of all the pleasures that you can get your hands on. But at the end of the day, you can't escape the reality that death is going to one day come and take it all away. So in light of that, what have you really gained by everything that you have? The answer is, you really haven't gained anything. It's all going to be taken away. And it kind of looks like a man trying to catch the wind, does it not? The picture that the preacher's been giving us over and over again is like striving after wind. It's like a man chasing, trying to grab hold of something that he cannot take hold of. We saw that in the second part of chapter 1 and in chapter 2. In chapter 3, we saw how we like to think that we can control the time and seasons of our own lives. But in reality, you can only work with what you have been given. And God is the one who does the giving, not you. You are but a creature in His creation. And you will die just like the beast of the field will die. So be thankful and rejoice over the gifts that God has given you. Because that is your lot. That is your purpose in life that God has given to you. You are to treat your life as a gift, not using it to try and store up some kind of profit under the sun. Because one day you will die, and Jesus will judge all things. So learn to live in light of that reality. That was chapter 3. Now, also, learn to be a giver and not a getter. Which is what the preacher means for us to see here in chapter 4. And the way that we're going to see that in this chapter is in two parts. And once again, Gibson is helpful. He says, you can either hate your neighbor and so destroy yourself, or you can love your neighbor and so love yourself. End quote. So those are the two pictures that we are about to see. And that's how this chapter is broken up. Verses 1 to 8 are going to give us a picture of what it looks like to hate your neighbor and destroy yourself in the process. And then verses 9 to 16 are going to show us what it looks like to love your neighbor. And so love yourself in the process. So that is where we're going. And now let's look first at the picture of loving our, or excuse me, hating our neighbor and so destroying ourselves. Verses 1 to 8. And the way that the preacher starts out this picture is that he says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Now this is kind of similar to what we were talking about and looking at last week 
whenever he said that he saw that wickedness was in the place of justice and wickedness was in the place of righteousness. The corruption that he saw in places of government and things like that. So he's kind of continuing that theme here in chapter 4. But now he widens the camera angle because he says all the oppressions, all of them, he's seen all the oppressions under the sun. And then he focuses in on the oppressed. He says, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. Look at those who are oppressed. Look at their tears. Look at their suffering. They have no one to comfort them, he says. He says that twice. He's emphasizing their loneliness, their oppression, their suffering, and the fact that they are alone. And then he says, and I thought the dead. So in light of that picture, in light of looking at that, in light of seeing this oppression and the people who are oppressed, he says, and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. So those who have already died are better than the ones who are still alive because they don't have to put up with the oppressions anymore. You know, they're already dead. Their oppression is gone. This is the way of thinking that he's he has here. But better than both is the one who has not been born yet because he hasn't seen the oppression in the first place. Now, how does that fit into the theme that we've been seeing? Because he's been showing us that life is a gift, right? A gift from God. So how does he all of a sudden say that it's better to not even been born? That doesn't make any sense. Well, what the preacher is trying to show us is not a truth statement. He's not trying to describe to us the truth. Instead, he's just showing us what it feels like to experience this reality. This is what it feels like to be alone and oppressed. And this is what it also feels like to just stare at it. Because remember, this is what we have been talking about that this man is seeking to just stare at reality, to see it as it really is. You know, he's tired of looking at the fantasy of life that we tend to have. So he's, th- he's seeking to cut through it all. And so in staring at it, this is what he sees. And this is what he feels like. It's better to not have even been born because you, because you would not even know the oppressions that are under the sun. Now, this language is not found only here in Ecclesiastes. We see this kind of talk in other parts of the Bible as well. We see this in Job. Job, in all of his suffering and oppression, cries out and says, Let the day perish on which I was born. So again, he's despising his birth. He's wishing that he had been born because of all of the the oppression that he experienced. In fact, Job devotes a whole chapter, chapter 3 of Job, to despising his own birth. That man was consumed by oppression, and that's what he cried out. The prophet Jeremiah as well cried out something similar. He said, Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? These are both expressions of great suffering. 
And that's what the preacher is communicating here. He is communicating the reality of what it is like to experience great suffering. But what is at the heart of all of this oppression that he sees? What's at the core of it all? He tells us in verse 4. He says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Envy. He says envy is at the heart of the toil and the skill that he sees. Now remember, that word toil does not just mean work. It means expending of energy. So it means whatever you expend energy in. That is toil. So he's showing that the motivation, the core motivation that he sees in the midst of all of this is selfishness, which is at the heart of envy. That two-letter word that we were talking about a moment ago. Me. Me. That is what is at the heart of envy. The care and the love of me and not others. And now he goes on to, in verses 5 to 7, to give us some more examples to, to continue coloring in the picture for us. He shows us a picture of the fool who is lazy. That's the picture that we get here. He says the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. It's the picture of a man who desires only to please himself, not to serve anybody else, and so he folds his hands in laziness and he doesn't care about anybody else but himself. But in the process, not only does he hurt others, he destroys himself, which is what is meant by eats his own flesh. Now you probably won't ever see somebody actually eat their own flesh, but you will see people destroy themselves because it happens every day. The next example is the the opposite of laziness. He says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So the opposite of laziness is having your hands so full of work that you couldn't help anybody if you wanted to. Because both of your hands are full of toil, of work, of your own pursuits. But at the beginning of verse 6, he gives us this little glimpse of, he gives us a a glimpse of what restoration looks like. The the resolution, the solution. He gives us a glimpse of what the solution is like. He says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full. So the picture is, instead of having two hands full of toil, or rather just folding your hands and doing nothing, Instead, have one hand full of toil and have the other one full of rest. Have it free so that you can serve others. Now that's the first glimpse of the solution. We're going to see the the rest of it whenever we get down to verse 9. The next example that he gives in verse 7 Verse 7 down to verse 8, he gives us a picture of the man who has everything that he can want. You could say the businessman on top of the world. He has worked very hard, 
and He has no end to His pleasures. He says, And His eyes are never satisfied with riches. So He has all of these things, but at the same time, He's never satisfied. And so He works, and He works, and He works. He has all of this stuff, but He's at the top alone. He has no one to share these things with. But even if He did, He wouldn't care. Because He hasn't even thought to Himself why He's doing it in the first place. The preacher says, He doesn't even ask for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure. He's so consumed with Himself, He's so consumed with selfishness, that He can't look past Himself to even begin to consider other people. Now I want us to pause for a moment. Because it's very easy for us to hate laziness. You know, we, we look down upon laziness. The person who doesn't love his family, who doesn't provide for his family, it's very easy for us to not like those things. But when it comes to being a workaholic, a man who provides for his family, you know, who works very hard, who stays gone all the time, who may not ever see his family or friends or anyone else so that he can serve them, we give that man an excuse. Well, he has a job and he's working very hard. He's doing what he's trying to do or he's doing his best, you could say. You know, he's working hard. But what does the preacher say? He says that man's just as foolish as the one who's lazy and doesn't do anything. Because even though you work, 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 and you provide for your family, maybe, you don't ever get to see them. You don't serve them. And you have no opportunity to love your neighbor. So that is just as foolish as complete laziness is. Now we come down to verse 9. So now the preacher is moving from the picture of hating your neighbor and so destroying yourself to showing us what it looks like to love our neighbor and so love ourself in the process. And so he adds to what he said in verse 6. So again, you have the picture of the man who has one hand full of toil with the other hand full of rest. And that means that he has a hand that is free to love his neighbor with. And the preacher continues and he says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. And then he gives some obvious reasons of why two is better than one. He's giving us a picture of what you and I were created for from the very beginning. Because what did God say when He created Adam? It is not good for man to be alone. And so then He created the woman. And then He told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's showing us with these obvious examples, like the obvious, the obvious example that if there's two people, you can work harder and you can, you can earn more. You can make more profit when there's two of you instead of just one. The truth that if there's two of you, you can protect one another because if one person's alone, he can easily be overtaken. Or if it's just one person, he'll freeze to death. But if there's two, then they can warm each other. 
So those are obvious reasons that prove that man is not meant to be alone. We are meant to be in community, which is what he means when he says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The more the merrier. Community is a good thing. He's showing you that when you have one handful free to love and serve your neighbor, then you can live within the community that God has put you in rightly. You can love them. You can serve them. And so you can love yourself in the process. When we come to verse 13, the last example that he gives, he gives us a picture of two men. One is an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to take advice. And I think that what the preacher is trying to portray in this old and foolish king is a man who no longer loves his neighbor. He, he's the portrayal of all of the negative things that the preacher has just said. So he's a man who is a king, but he thinks only of himself. He doesn't take advice from anybody else. He doesn't love His kingdom. He doesn't love His servants. He doesn't serve them. And then, another, then the, the other person that He gives is a young and poor youth. But yet He's wise. And He's wise because He puts into practice the positive things that the preacher lays out in chapter 4. Yes, He may be poor. He may come from nothing. But He understands that to truly live in a wise way means to love other people. It means to serve them. It means to put them before yourself. And so he puts those things into practice. And he quickly ascends to the throne. He's made king. And the preacher says that he sees this. He observes what, he observes what happens. And he sees that there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. So he shows that this man, putting those things into practice, loved his neighbor well, and the people loved him in return. They made him king. And so this is a positive picture that he is in a proverbial way, you could say. Remember, this is wisdom literature that we're reading here. He's crafting this with wisdom words and proverbial pictures. So the young man is a picture of what we should be like. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves, which is fulfilling the law of God, the, the Ten Commandments. You know, the first part, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. And so when you do that, you will not only love other people well, they will love you in, the, in return, and you will be loving yourself in the process. But what about the last thing that he says? This is kind of a, a U-turn. Almost, We wouldn't expect that to be there. We would expect Him just to end with that final note. You know, there was no end to all the people that He led. You know, the happy ending. 
But as usual, Solomon doesn't end like that. He ends rather on a, a somber note. He says, Yet those who come later will not rejoice in Him. Surely this, all, surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So why does he put that there? Why is that there? And I think that's there because if it wasn't there, it would be very easy for us to say, you know, we should be like the wise person and not like the fool. It would be very works-oriented, right? You know, I could preach that message. I could say, this is foolish way of living. This is wise way of living. You know, observe the foolish king and then observe the wise king. Be like the wise king. And I'd pray and say amen. But where's Christ? And that's why he puts this there. Because he's taking us back to what he said earlier in his book. That the wise is going to die just like the fool is going to die. So although this man put these things into practice, although he loved his neighbor well, he still dies. And he's still forgotten. Just like the old foolish king is forgotten. And this is what drives us to Christ. Because yes, we are called to love and serve our neighbors. We are called to do those things. We are called to, as the preacher is going to say in chapter 12, fear God and keep His commandments. But we need to understand that we cannot do these things rightly in and of ourselves. You cannot truly love your neighbor and love yourself as God calls you to without somebody enabling you to. Because you can love your neighbor as we just saw, and be called wise, but what are you doing it for? If you're just doing it for what happens here, for what you gain here, then you're not going to gain anything. You're going to lose it all. And you're no better than the foolish person. And this is why Christ came. In His example during His life and ministry, Jesus loved His neighbor perfectly. But He didn't just do it to do it. He did it first and foremost to obey the will of His Father and to restore a separation that had happened from the very beginning. And that is what enables us to truly love our neighbor as God intends for us to. Because if you are going to love your neighbor well, you must first love God properly. And you cannot love God properly unless someone brings you back into the relationship with God that we severed and destroyed in Genesis chapter 3. Because think back for a moment. In Genesis chapter 3, the first thing that happened was the separation of the relationship between God and man. That was broken. And then shortly after that, 
Then we saw the story of Cain and Abel, which was a picture of the separation and the sinfulness and the hatred of our neighbor. So all of that flowed from separation from God. So the way to get back to those things is to get back to being restored with God. A restored relationship with God. And that is what Christ accomplishes. When He loved His neighbor as Himself, He fulfilled the law of God. He loved the Lord with His heart, soul, mind, and strength, and He loved His neighbor as Himself. And through Him, being reborn, being remade into a new creation, He enables us and gives us the desire to love God and therefore love our neighbors as ourself. So yes, we are to love and serve our neighbors. We are to share and hold loosely to what we have. We are to seek to give it away when we can. But know, you must know, that the gain, the reward that we do these things for is not what you get here. Because if you seek to do it for what you get here, then you're going to be no better than the wise king who died and was forgotten. You do these things for Christ, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And when you do it for those reasons, then you gain everything. You not only gain the presence of Christ and a relationship with Him, but you gain your neighbor and love them as you were intended to. And in so doing, you love yourself in the process. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and again we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the wonderful pictures that it paints for us. Not only does it paint our, our sinfulness before our eyes, how wretched we really are, but it also shows us what restoration looks like. It leads us to You. It shows us where hope is found. It's not found under the sun, but above the sun where Christ is. So I ask that You would be helping us, Father, as we go through the weeks to come, that You would be helping us to put to death our selfish tendencies and to put others before ourselves, to love You and to love our neighbor as ourself, and in the process, love ourselves truly. And in doing that, we would put on display the Gospel, what it means to know Christ, what it means to be renewed in Him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.